Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. I'm here with Tim Holbrook of Masonboro Reserve Grocery Company. How's it going, Tim? How are you? Thank you. Have a good day. Yeah, well, thanks for sitting down with me. I really appreciate this. Um, we've chatted a little bit briefly over Facebook and over uh, text, um, and just now initially. But yeah, um, your wealth of knowledge, and this is really cool. Well, you know, I've been oyster farming now just for the for the last third year, um, and what wealth of knowledge I have, I have to credit to the other pioneers in the industry and also to the research that's done at UNCW Center for Marine Science and also at uh, up in <clears throat> Moorhead City, uh, UNCW is up there, uh, Carteret County's got a school there and this is an emerging industry uh, with a lot of growth potential and there's a tremendous amount of resources developing it. Yeah, that's really cool. It's um you know, it seems like we were just chatting recently, uh, just just now about how, um, you know, on top of it being an emerging industry, everyone's helping each other. Uh, everyone's kind of in it together, which is rare to find. And, and you know, it's probably the most collegial business model that yeah. I've ever seen. I mean, my fiercest competitors are my best friends and we share uh, our failures and our successes freely. Nice. And part <laughs> of that is because in North Carolina, about 80% of the uh, shellfish eaten in the state comes from other states. Yeah. So we have a lot more demand than we have supply. Yeah. Why? Um. Why is that? Like I've read about that. Like I've I've got a friend who actually uh, works in a restaurant in Charleston. Mm -hmm. A lot of his oysters come from uh, Virginia. Virginia. A lot of them come from Virginia. And we've got Gulf. as much coastline here. Well, part of that is Virginia was very proactive from a legislative perspective about okay. fifteen years ago. And they saw this opportunity, and through William and Mary, uh, Virginia Institute of Marine Science, which we call VIMS, um, they made it easier for the leasing process. They put in a lot of um, research efforts to brood stock to find a, a, an oyster that uh, is disease resistant, uh, temperature resistant, and, and really put the full force of the government um, behind the industry because they saw the future. Now, 15 years ago, the farm gate value, that's kind of a USDA term, how much is your animal worth when it leaves the farm? Uh, the farm gate value of Virginia uh, was about two and a half million dollars a year. North Carolina was about the same. Uh, Virginia has eclipsed that over the last 15 years and yeah. it's about 20 times ahead of us. Oh, wow. Strangely enough, Virginia has a small body of water that they can harvest oysters. Yeah. They've got the Chesapeake, they've got the James River, but if you look at a map and look at the available growing area in North Carolina, we have probably a hundred times more water than we do, than they do. But it's taken a little while for the North Carolina State Legislature, who has now gotten on board, the governor actually has gotten behind it, uh, to make this a, a real push yeah. um, for, for our, not just for the cleaning of our estuaries, because oysters do that, but for as an um, economic value. You know, there have been many articles written, um, the New York Times, National Geographic, and I don't know who coined the phrase. I think I do, but I don't want to credit the wrong person. Okay. But um, North Carolina has multiply been uh, 
has been coined as the Napa Valley yeah. of oysters. Yeah. And not only do we have a large area, but we have a diversity of of water. I mean, so my oyster here, which I think is a very fine tasting oyster, um, tastes different than the one that grows in Ocracoke. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that mine's better. It's just, okay, uh, do you like white wine or red wine? Yeah. You know, what red wine do you like? Do you like Pinot or do you like Cab or so? What season? What? Yeah. I mean, it's so many different aspects. So an oyster basically tastes like what it just drank. Yeah. And though even all of us from New York to Texas uh, are growing the exact same genetic oyster, um, they will taste completely different. Uh, depending on the water content, the mineral quality. Yeah, that's um, and that's called marijuana, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so is North Carolina, uh, you know, making some strides in in catching up to Virginia? Yes, um, we have, and a lot of that really has to do with some lobbying efforts from the North Carolina Shellfish Growers Association. Okay. Uh, North Carolina State University has a program called Sea Grant. Uh, Chuck yeah. Weirich is kind of in charge of the self, shellfish part of that. Um, and there's been a lot of effort through lobbying and uh, uh, state support, and even federal government support, to bring North Carolina online and, and really kind of catapult it into not just the economic aspects, but, you know, one of the things that we're looking at right now is, is creating something called the North Carolina Oyster Trail. So as you might go and drive the Blue Ridge Parkway and go to little different restaurants and places like that, you'll be able to drive up and down the North Carolina coast and go to different oyster farms and do farm tours and go to restaurants that have those locally sourced products. Yeah. So um, I think probably within a year or two, we will see that in our tourism pamphlets of the North Carolina Oyster Trail. Man, sign me up. That that sounds so cool. Yeah, I could really, um, yeah, I could really see how that could blow up, um, you know, in a good way. What uh, you mentioned, kind of the the government, um, the governor Roy Cooper. Um, we just had, you know, we'll get into this a little bit more, but we just had one of the worst hurricanes we've ever had. Florence. Yeah, and it hit me bullseye. Yeah, my farm particularly. Did it? Right? I had about a ninety five percent mechanical loss and and fatality from the storm. It was it was pretty devastating. And and many of my colleagues on north and south of me did did as well. We have done a survey through the Growers Association, and the best estimates that we had, we lost somewhere around six or seven million dollars of annual revenue from the storm. Just the few growers that we have here in the state. Wow! And that's what I was. I heard that he was. I read that he was uh, had about you know. $12 $12 million dog Somewhere year. between 10 and 12 have been uh, identified to go to the North Carolina Marine Fisheries. That's going to be determined by the director, uh, Steve Murphy. And some of that will, and I think a good portion will go to shellfish growers, but also not just shellfish growers, but people that were shrimpers and finfish farmers and crabbers. Right. You know, a lot of us in the marine fisheries industry had a pretty heavy loss. Um, we haven't determined yet how that money is going to be dispersed. Mm-hmm. Um, the check hasn't been written yet. Right. But it is it is very encouraging to know that the, the Senate House and, and ultimately the governor has allocated out of the 400 and some million dollars for agriculture losses in the state, that 10 to 12 of that will go to the Division of Infrastructure. Okay, yeah, that is, I was wondering... Because I don't, I don't have a baseline. I was wondering if that was going to be substantial or if that was going to be something, you know, that could actually help or see a dent. Well, um, most of the growers here in the state have a very 
a required minimal insurance from USDA, and and that insurance program only covers about 15% of our losses, uh, enough to kind of get us back up to speed. But, you know, unfortunately with oyster farming, uh, I plant a one cent seed and I have to wait for almost two years right. to be able to sell it for 70, 80 cents. Yeah. So, you know, even though I might be able to recoup some of my seed and mechanical um, uh, costs, you don't want to be in this business and work for two years for free. Yeah. So any additional money that we might see from the state, um, you know, I, unfortunately, I think many of my colleagues from the hurricane are not going to be able to get back in business. Oh, wow. And, and that's sad. Yeah. Um, even with the best efforts of what the insurance and the assistance from the state government might be, um, it's not just financially um, disturbing, but when you put two years of your life working several days a week to grow a crop and then it's gone emotionally, it's it's pretty tough. And who's to say it won't happen? You know, I, you well, know, I don't want you know, to I, I had a I had about a thirty five percent loss with Hurricane Matthew a couple years ago. Oh man! Um, and you know, I, I think, oh gosh, that's terrible. But I look at communities like Matthews, other little towns that they had just rebuilt from the you know these little communities yeah. had just moved back into their homes and moved back into their businesses. And then all of a sudden, Florence comes in and puts them seven or eight feet underwater. Right. So yes, I had a hard hit businessly, financially, you know, business financially. But I have to look around at not in not just my farming colleagues, those that grow sweet potatoes or soybeans or mm-hmm. whatever they're growing. You know, they took a big hit. But my heart really goes out to these near coastal communities that twice in two years received. Um, to 500 year floods. You know, you talked a little bit about the return when you when you plant it, you see something about two years later. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, how fast does it grow? Or how fast does it grow? Well, North Carolina has one commercial hatchery uh, a little above Moorhead City, and most of us uh, buy seeds from there. And when I say seeds, they're actually oysters. They're already an oyster. But they're about the size of a pencil eraser, maybe a little bigger, four millimeter. And that usually costs somewhere between a cent and a half and two and a half cents. Mm. Um, We put them in floating cages with a very small mesh. And as they grow, we split them into two cages with a larger mesh and split them again into more cages. And so um, we basically have to touch and split and sort and tumble our product that goes to market. We touch them about 15 or 20 times before... We sell them. Gotcha. Which is like different, different than the wild harvest. I mean, if you go out in the wild harvest, um, you go out to an oyster reef and you hit it once or twice and then that's it. Yeah. Unfortunately, our wild harvest population in, in the entirety of North America has plummeted. I read an article just the other day that uh, uh, up in the Chesapeake, they realize they only have about 5% of wild harvestable oysters of what they had 30 years ago. A lot of that has to do with um, over-harvesting, but in reality, it has to do with coastal development. When somebody builds a golf course or when somebody builds homes and there's more pollutants and more runoff and less marsh and estuary area, you know, oysters are kind of the canary in the coal mine. And we're seeing the the wild populations from from Maine to Texas really plummet in the last 20, 30 years. That's really, so I'm reading this, um, this book by, Col- by Paul uh, Greenberg, it's called mm-hmm. American Catch. 
It's really amazing as a lot of his books are focused on, well, this one in particular focuses on you know, what's going on with American seafood. Why are we importing so much? Just like you mentioned about you know North Carolina. But one of the biggest things was we were losing all of this estuary. We're losing all these marshlands so rapidly because of development. They're so important to so many different. You know, 80% of marine sea life um, was nurseried or hatcheried in the wild in an estuary. So almost all of the marine life in the world started in an estuary. So if we have uh, pollution and depletion of estuaries based on um, development, that just doesn't affect that particular area. It protect it, it's the rest of marine life worldwide. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, hopefully, in comes the oyster. I mean, that's what that's and great that's, to do. And you know, it's interesting that the oyster is actually the only method of farming that is environmentally enhancing. Yeah. So as we are out there growing a product for profit, mm-hmm. which you know you have to do. Yeah. We are actually um, creating uh, environmental resources and it's interesting when i go out on my farm and I, I pull up one of my oyster bags and i throw it on the on the deck of the boat to sort it or split it there might be two thousand baby shrimp in there about um, an eighth of an inch long mm-hmm. and there's little minnows in there mm-hmm. and there's little yeah. tiny crabs because it creates not just a clean habitat mm-hmm. But it creates a structural area for them to swim and live and breathe, with being safe from predators. Right. Yeah. So um, it creates that structure yeah. as well as that clean, clean water environment. I think that was one of the, the things that really attracted me to oyster farming. A, I love oysters. I, mm-hmm. You know. But B, it's just uh, yeah. I mean, it's one of the things that pulls. We were just talking about how um, uh, pig farming is huge. In North Carolina. Well, you know, in North Carolina, we have more pigs than people. I, yeah, population. I, I've read that. And uh, But they're also, you know, if done improperly or if done on a large scale, could be really dirty. Uh, so it pulls in um, you know, a lot of nitrogen of what they eat and what they... Well, and the oyster farms along the coast actually are removing that nitrogen. Exactly. Which is, uh, I mean, you can't really say that for any other large farming industry. No. It, o- oyster farming is the only type of farming that is in environmentally environmentally beneficial and actually on a side note uh, an oyster is the only animal that a vegan can eat an oyster is the only animal that does not have a central nervous system oh interesting so if you're a member of PETA and the reason you're a member of PETA is because you are ethically um, you can actually ethically eat an oyster as a vegan oh wow since it's the only now a clam has a central nervous system an oyster does not really it's the only it's the simplest animal um in the biological chain. Wow. So let's talk about like how you got started um, in the industry. Like what what drew you towards it? You know, what what kind of challenges have you seen in the years other than Florence? What kind of uh, you know positive rewards have you been able to see? Like how how has the industry changed? Well, the industry of all types of mariculture, aquaculture. Mariculture means salt water. Mm-hmm. Aquaculture is you know could be. Um, Tilapia farming inland and catfish farming and gotcha. shrimp, you know. Um, but mariculture is basically um, shellfish, gotcha. uh, clams, and uh, and oysters. We have really, in the last fifteen years, seen a tremendous amount of not just technological developments, like what kind of cages you use, how you handle them, what machinery do you use to help you reduce your labor costs. So we've we've seen a lot of that, but also 
uh, from the research of uh, Virginia Institute of Marine Science and here in Wilmington at UNCW Center for Marine Science. Um, a lot of um, scientific um, advances that are um, creating... Now, <clears throat> my oysters are not genetically modified. Mm -hmm. um, actually, it's what is called a selective breeding. So Dr. Amy Wilbur here at Center for Marine Science, she goes out and sources local oysters from all over North Carolina. And she takes them and breeds them together and finds out which one grow the fastest and which ones are uh, less impacted by salinity changes or cold temperature. And over now, I think this is her seventh year, she is developing a brood stock hmm. of a, a very hardy oyster. Like, just say I was a cattle farmer. Yeah. I'm going to get my biggest bull. Of course. Yeah. And I'm going to breed it over and over again, right, and yeah. then it's all spring, and then it's all spring, and you're going to come up with a, a fast-growing, healthy product. And that's what has happened here in just the last 15, 20 years that has really changed the dynamic. The other thing is the way that we grow our oysters um, – we don't grow them in what are called clusters. You know, if you get an oyster roast, you might get a bucket of oysters and four or five of them are attached together. Yep. And then there's yep. two or three and you might get one single. 99% of what I grow are all single individual oysters. And so therefore, we're able to create a lot uh, more um, value because it's funny, I can't even afford to eat at some of the restaurants that I sell to. Yeah. Um, we sell to what we call in the industry white tablecloth restaurants. So if I go and sit down at a restaurant and I order a dozen oysters, they're 35 to $45 a dozen. Yeah. Not 35 to $45 a 40-pound bushel. Right. So part of the process of growing them in individual bags and we flip them and turn them and, and shoot kind of manage the shape of them. And when you see a dozen of these white tablecloth oysters uh, on a plate, they almost look all identical. Yeah. Because we're not just going out and knocking them off a rock and a big one and a little one. We sort them through a process of not just product consistency is how it looks on the plate, but in flavor. And that's what very high-end chefs are looking for. Yeah, and they, um, I think a lot of it, I might be wrong, is the floating cages. Like that was one thing that really appeals to me is that you, you're not going to find dirt in any of your oysters. No. They're not, they're not literally growing in the soil. They're floating and it's just, well, you know, another part about the floating cages is, you know, oysters like to eat phytoplankton um, and, and nitrogen, but they also need oxygen and what's called dissolved oxygen. Mm. And in the water column, which means from the bottom of the floor up to the top of the water, that's the water column, most of the nutrients and most of the dissolved oxygens are at the top of the water column. So if you're growing in a floating cage at the top of the water column, it's kind of, I don't want to say like putting it on steroids, but um, you know, wild oysters that you might see in an oyster reef, maybe three or four hours twice a day they're out of the water mm. and they're not eating yeah and then Good some point. of the day they're five or six feet below the water and that's not where the food and oxygen source is so one of the thing about floating cages is not only is it mechanically easier to access at various tides but that's where the food source is most oysters in the wild are what are called diploids yes. which means they either they're either male or female Occasionally in the wild, you will have an oyster that is a triploid that has three chromosomes, which is basically a hermaphrodite. 
Um, not exactly, but um, but think of a seedless watermelon. When a donkey mates with a horse, um, you have a mule, and the mule cannot reproduce. Um, so the oysters that we grow are triploids. They do have three chromosomes. Gotcha. It doesn't, it doesn't affect the flavor. It is not genetically modified. It is something that happens naturally. Um, but the reason that triploids have become very popular, you may have thought for many years, as I did, that you would eat oysters in months that had an R. And, I, you know, <clears throat> September through April. And I used to think that was from a um, health perspective about water temperature. In reality, it's not. When the water temperature hits 68 degrees in about March, April, oysters go through a spawning process. The male and the female oysters spawn. And they lose about 80% of their body weight. Right. And it takes them until September to grow that body weight back. So, yes, you can go, even though legally you can't go and get a wild-caught oyster and eat it in August, um, you could, there's just no meat in it. Yeah. The one advantage of growing a sterile oyster is that it doesn't go through that spawning process and it's not recovering that lost body weight. So rather than taking it three and a half years to get to market size, it takes half that time. Yeah. Yeah. And also even better, we can harvest 12 months out of the year. And I can, I can taste, a, and I call, because I grow both on my farm. I grow diploids and triploids. And I can open them side by side and look at them and taste them, and they're identical. Oh, um, yeah. But economically, from a uh, farming perspective, uh, financially, uh, growing a triploid is, is the way to go. Yeah, it makes much more sense. Um, so what has been... Uh what have been some of the rewards uh, of farming um, and then some of the difficulties? Well, you know, one of the rewards in, in reality, um, you know, there are some financial rewards. Um, it is hard work. It is very labor intensive. And I'm not kidding you, when you go out there on February 15th and it's 11 degrees and it's blowing 25 miles an hour and you have to go to work, there's nothing fun about that. <laughs> and, you know, boats break down, trailers break down. Right. Um, you know, it's farming is not for the faint of heart, especially when you're farming in the water. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the, you know, really one of the greatest rewards is, is the people that I've met. Mm -hmm. Not just... Um, not just my colleagues that um, that are farmers as well, but uh, people within the university system, uh, my customer, uh, the restaurateurs, the chefs. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think really, I mean, it's nice to have a paycheck, but right. it's also nice that my office, um, I'm out on a boat in a beautiful marshland. I don't see any houses. I don't see any other boats. I mean, I've got a wonderful, beautiful office. Yeah. And the people that I do run into, whether it's my colleagues as farmers or my time that I spent with the university or my customers or chefs, um, it's just, that's probably the most rewarding. How far do, um, do, you, do your oysters travel? Mostly regionally. Um, right before the storm, I had set up a distribution chain. Unfortunately, I didn't get to use it much. That went from Miami to Boston. Um, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to supply that uh, chain probably for another year and a half. Yeah, yeah, because of Florence. What um, what is what is it going to take to get you? Like, what are you going to have to do to get back on your feet with this? Well, I'm going to have to plant another million oysters this spring and wait 18 months uh, before they're market ready. Now, there are some other options. Um, there are 
some growers in the state that grow a really nice shaped oyster that grows pretty quickly mm -hmm. uh, with a really good texture. Unfortunately, they started farming before people were really starting to consider the value of flavor. And there are places that grow really great looking oysters that just don't have flavor. So there is the potential for me to purchase from other growers a near market size product and put it on my farm and reflavor it for about two weeks. Because it only takes an oyster about six days to change the flavor content because it's filtering 50 gallons of water a day. Wow. So I can probably get back to market on a smaller scale, maybe within six months. But on a larger scale, it's going to be 18 to Yeah, back to where you were. Yeah. Interesting. Tim, if you need any help growing any of hey, those oysters. Man, come out there and get muddy. <laughs> I'd love to. And you'll get muddy and you know, you'll cut your hands up a little bit. But uh, there's nothing better than going out in the boat and cracking up a, a fresh oyster right out of the water. And oh, yeah. now, Interesting, you know, a lot of people are used to eating oysters that come from an oyster roast. And they cook them or they might put... Texas peat on them and or whatever garnishes that that you may like, but um, I don't know if you remember the television show Seinfeld, but I'm kind of the oyster Nazi, of like I, the yeah. Nazi. And the restaurateurs that I sell to that I, I have sway with, um, I demand that they do not cook them and they do not serve them with anything on them. Now right. they can put a garnish on the side right. because I think my flavor stands up on its own and it should be first tasted naked. Mm -hmm. Now if the person tastes it. And it has one or two like that and lets yeah. the flavor profile work through its process, which takes about 30 seconds. If they want to put something on it, they can. Yeah. Um, but very, I'd say 90% of the oysters that I sell are eaten raw with no garnish. Uh, it drives me nuts. It drives me nuts when, you know, you got to at least know what it tastes like before you start putting Texas peat or putting it on crackers. I don't get it. It's salty enough, if, you know, if you get the right oyster, it's salty enough as it is. It's got so many different flavors. Well, it's it. funny because... Um, I would, it would be almost impossible for me to sell my product in the Gulf because the people in, in that area, they're used to an oyster that's not salty mm -hmm. and they want to put it on a saltine cracker and put Texas peat on it. And if they were to eat my oyster and put it on a saltine cracker and put Texas peat on it, it'd be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So a lot of it is regional flavor as well. Yeah. You've got to, um, yeah, I'm partial to this area. I mean, you know, I've lived here for little bit less than a year, but I've had my fair share of oysters. Yeah. But man, I mean, just the salty, the briny flavor. Well, I've had the opportunity to travel around to many shellfish growers meetings all over the country and do a lot of food shows and things like that. And maybe me or 10 or 15 other growers will sample our products and, and people will come by and we'll give away maybe a thousand oysters. And, you know, um, consistently people come up to me and say, that's the best oyster I've ever eaten. Wow. And, and a lot of that has to do not with that. I'm doing it differently. It's because of the location that I chose. Right. Yeah. Well, that was, that was part of your process. Right. Yeah. So Tim, thank, thank you, you very much for this. Uh, Thanks yeah, for taking the time. Yeah, of course. Um, and I, I look forward to going out on the farm sometime soon and grabbing what few I have left and, and giving you an opportunity for a sample. I'm sorry we couldn't go today, but uh, we'll get out wet soon. So. I, sounds good, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it.